With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome back to the Missing Moramari podcast. I'm Tim, joined here with Lance. Lance, how are you today? I'm doing well. How are you, Tim? Doing pretty well. We recorded this live show on Spreecast.com a couple weeks ago. We waited a little while to release it because we had the Generation Y episode in the can. And also, it actually took a little while to edit something like this because when we do a live show the way we did it, it's a lot of awkward pauses. There's a lot of delays in waiting to uh, waiting for someone's voice to come through. Basically, what we had to do to edit this was a lot of cutting of dead air and, and things like that. But what did you think of the episode and the actual conversation with James Renner and Clint Harding? Well, first, I thought that it was uh, really unfortunate that uh, John Smith had some technical issues and he wasn't able to contribute in a in a um, real time fashion. He was contributing uh, on the side with his written comments. He was probably going nuts in his uh, house up there in New Hampshire. Um, he did uh, issue a, a response video, uh, which we'll provide the link to, so you can you can check that out. The intention was there. It's a beast. Like the episode's a beast. We got uh, James Renner and Clint on. Surprisingly, they agreed with each other on a lot of the uh, on a lot of the um, circumstances surrounding the case and and their own personal theories. And just everybody keep in mind that these are their own personal theories. This is not, not none of this has been proven as a fact yet. Mostly because there there hasn't been any conclusion. I was surprised at how fast theories were dismissed because it doesn't support their own. But I really can't blame them because ultimately what we do is we just keep going in circles. And the only fact that's that's out there is that it's been twelve years and she hasn't been found. I know that when we were actually recording this live show, it was very tough to keep up and for me to respond to what uh, Clint and James were actually saying back to us because we were reading the chat room, which was a very busy chat room that night, getting a lot of questions and comments. And it was very difficult to um, read a question on the screen, consider which one to choose, ask those guys and then listen to their answer while coming up with another question. So I feel kind of bad. I feel like I almost didn't listen to a lot of the responses from those guys because I noticed in listening back that I didn't really respond to what they said. 
um, a lot of times. And I blame myself, but maybe it was just too much to do. It really was a lot to do, especially with all the technical stuff that goes into it. You got to wait for the delay. You have to pick your time to speak. You got to look at what I mean. Just want to thank all of the people out there who contributed to this. It was coming in a rapid fire on the side there, and the energy there was really, really good. Um, but it was it was overwhelming. I mean, it was like, oh, good comment. Let's put it up there. And then right below, it's another good comment. But Clint and James were st- still uh, debating the previous comment. And then you have John commenting on the side as well. Um, so we had to keep our eyes peeled for that. So Right. And we tried to include as many of John Smith's comments as we could because we did feel bad. He wasn't able to... Uh, get um we were had some te- technical difficulties and he was supposed to be on on the live show with us and james and clint i mean this just shows how uh how this case you can't have a quick conversation about it, it was, i think how long were we on the air like two and a half hours or something it was about two hours yep. yeah so you know and it and it's all the same details people want to know about the uh four thousand dollars they want to know about the rag in the tailpipe and the uh condition of the car and whether or not it was consistent with the accident so a lot of it is very redundant uh but we did get some really good stuff out of it. Uh, one thing uh, that I was surprised when I heard uh, Clinton talk was that he really emphasizes the family introducing a lot of the elements. And you'll hear that when you listen to this. The suicide element, the packing of the dorm room, uh, a couple of other things. But he, he really uh, emphasizes that strongly. Okay, so we're going to roll the hour and 40 minute live show uh, edited version now. And we are going to cut in at one point, and that's pretty much it. So uh, thank you very much for listening. Please follow us on Twitter at Doc. We're on Instagram, on Facebook as well. Check out our new promo that we just put out there. Um, people seem to be really liking it and responding positively to it, so we really appreciate that. Thank you very much. And check out John Smith's rebuttal if you uh, want to hear his side of some of these topics. And we do know that most of our episodes are about an hour or so. Uh, This is a little bit longer, um, but it's definitely worth the listen. And uh, we hope you enjoy it. And anybody who contributed during it, um, you know, we appreciate it. And, uh, you know, hopefully you you appreciate the, uh, the final result here. Everybody. Welcome to the Missing Mora Murray live show. I am Tim Polari. I'm here with Lance Reensterna right here. We got Clint Harding and we got James Renner on. How's it going, guys? What's going on? Good. Good. So, Lance, we, we wanted to have everybody on because these three guys, James, Clint, and John Smith, they represent the three major theories of what happened to Mora Murray. And so we figured that it would that we could have a good sort of roundtable discussion with everybody um, chiming in and trying to support their theories. Well, I mean, just like what you said, it's uh, um, there's, uh, you know, pretty much the three prevailing theories out there, which is um, uh, she rode in tandem with somebody and uh, got into a car and she's living in another life somewhere else um, that she was abducted and that she um went into the woods and uh and perished in the woods so um these are the three people who have been kind of the front runners on all those theories so uh, i don't think uh, anyone's ever given the uh, platform for them to kind of talk and and debate uh you know have a healthy debate and our listeners can contribute while uh 
while this is going on. James and Clint, uh, I know you guys have emailed before, but, um, well, you know, face-to-face, this is nice. Here's an introduction. <laughs> Pretty awkward one. I've seen him on the, on the YouTube channel before, but, uh, you yeah, know, it's good, uh, good to meet everybody in person. Um, cool. Weird. You guys out there in the chat room, feel free to... Um, bring in any any questions that uh, that you have. I know that there are a bunch here already, so uh, we'll try to sift through and find anything that um, is particularly great. Uh, so, Lance, do you have any questions to start off? Well, yeah, I think one of the uh, main things that I want to uh, address and uh, get everyone's opinion on is uh, just jump right into it: the ATM video. Or the ATM footage, mm-hmm. which uh, is not a video. I believe it's still footage. I'd like to know, just hear every, everyone's opinion on um, why they think law enforcement has not uh, released that to anybody. I guess I'll go first. I'll jump in here. Uh, so about a month ago, um, when people were talking about this on the blog, uh, I uh, did uh, call up. I have uh, Scarenza's cell phone number. Um, Scarenza was the lead investigator on the Maura Murray case. I uh, worked for the state police for a number of years. He was the lead investigator early on. Uh, he was the guy in the helicopter, um, uh, you know, day two, uh, looking for Mora and, uh, you know, zooming around the White Mountains. So um, Scrinza was, anyways, um, people were wondering about this ATM footage. I called up Scrinza. Uh, he did pick up, and I talked to him uh, for about five minutes. And one of the questions I did ask him was, uh, you know, hey, uh, this ATM, what's it show? And, um, you know, why is not why is it not being released? And uh, what Scarinza said was that uh, it was, uh, he believes, he said, I believe it was more in the car, um, that it was just uh, one person. Um, and I got the impression from talking to him that, um, that the quality of the video was not that great. Um, and my hunch is that they have not released it because it might just lead to more rumors and speculation that maybe maybe the video is so bad in quality that other than being able to tell that it's just one person in the vehicle, um, you wouldn't definitively be able to say uh, 100% it was, it was Mora. Um, but he feels strongly that it is. And that's uh, part of this is conjecture on my part as to why they're not releasing it. But um, from Scarinza, he says uh, one person, it was Maura Murray. But Scarinza says that it's uh, one person and it's Maura Murray, um, but won't release it to the, did I miss that? Won't release it to the family because um, of the bad quality? How can he tell it's bad? I mean, how can he tell who it is? Yeah, that was that was conjecture on my part. I'm guessing there as to why he won't release it. I don't know actually why he would never let the family see it. Um, I was asking him if he would release it to the public, to release it out there, why nobody's ever made it public. Um, he, of course, isn't involved with the investigation anymore. He's retired, so, um, you know, who knows? My, my guess is it's just very poor quality footage, and they have nothing to gain by releasing it. Um, I'd like them to release it, though. I mean can't hurt yeah i think kf looked into this and said that it's the uh the only case in recent history of a missing person where um no one has seen the last known um security footage or video footage or surveillance footage of this person i was just gonna add that that's what i've always believed is that the video quality of that footage is not very good 
So really releasing it. I mean, we're talking about a video from 2004. So releasing it to the public is, is really not going to accomplish anything if the quality is not very good. That's That was just always what I believed about that ATM video. I can't believe I'm agreeing with I, I'm agreeing with Clint for once. You know we're in agreement here. We we found common ground. I'm just kidding. And John Smith just said nothing at all to lose to lose unless it has evidence. I I'm, I kind of am with John on this. I don't understand even if it is bad quality. I don't I don't know why they wouldn't just put it out there just this point at this point yeah personally i think you know with with the fact that the investigators have been very consistent about saying they're not going to release anything else that that this probably just fits in with that that there is just something that they have that they're just not going to release like everything else if they started uh, picking and choosing what they released then that would give room for for you know asking for more things to be released by them so i think it's just as simple as that really well they've done a pretty decent job of uh denying anybody anything so i just don't see the point in not releasing this and you know and then just going back to the old mo yeah uh, i wouldn't uh say it's a, a conspiracy i you know because um you know i think it's much more likely it's just uh just apathy on the on the police on the policeman's part James, you are right on the money as usual with this. Yeah, that's a shame. That's a shame if if that's really the case that it's apathy on, on their part. Um, it seems like it seems like Fred has wanted to see this video too, and they they won't even let Fred Murray see it. Um, doesn't see that that doesn't make any sense. I, I guess I I could get it why they wouldn't put it out. Just you know, it's really not necessarily our business, even though you know we're we're trying to sort of make it our business. But why they wouldn't just show Fred is beyond me. And I think John has a uh, issue with Scarinza saying only one person in the ATM video. John said he thinks there's two. He just said I think there were two people in the video. Uh, if they did not, if they do not want to release it, yeah, I don't know where where that would come from. But I just never thought that that was a huge deal. But maybe others see. I know I know people have speculated maybe she had like a black eye or something, and that would show something. But to me, I just don't see the really the huge deal with this uh i think the atm footage is probably is probably just not very good quality and i personally never thought much else about that if there were two people on the video um that would that would be a reason for them to release it the fact that they haven't suggests to me that there's nothing like that on on the video mm. yeah and john says of course they'd, they'd tell us if there was more than more in the vehicle that would be a very good lead John says uh, they did not give Friesen, Fred a reason. Friesen, uh, they did not give Fred a reason why. Um, let's let's move on to uh, witness A. Um, what do you guys uh, What do you guys think about witness A? The witness who who claims she saw a police SUV 001 pass her twice, um, right at around the time of the accident. I think she's a legit witness. I, you know, I just kind of question her time frame. It doesn't really seem to match with with uh, when things kind of took place, and you know that that can be expected. Somebody could get their times off just by a little bit, but I think her account's credible. I don't have any questions with that. So yeah, I don't uh, I don't buy into witness A in the least. I I don't um, I, I believe that person may exist. I think there's a high likelihood that somebody exists who says that they're a witness to this and that we've, uh, you know, ascribed as being witness A. 
Um, but uh, I think whatever they saw was not what they think they saw that night. I think the time frame is way off. Um, and, uh, you know, but then again, I don't I don't ascribe to any of these um, conspiracies about police involvement. Uh, I think police did pretty much everything they could have done um, as best as they could. Um, so if there is a witness, a you know, again, I think the time time's off and this whole thing about seeing an SUV parked nose to nose with Moore's car. Nah, uh, you know, I, I, I doubt it was, um, you know, I, I, I've learned a lot about eyewitness testimony um, by by investigating these different crimes and spending time with, uh, you know, multiple sources in, in these other stories. And eyewitness testimony is incredibly um, not reliable. And your mind actually rewrites your memory, um, especially around an event that you prescribe um, importance to later on after the fact. So it's possible she saw another vehicle near Mora's. And then, you know, later on, she totally believes or he totally believes whoever witness A is witness A believes they see in their memory um, an SUV nose to nose with Mora's uh, vehicle and even makes up the fact that it's this specific SUV that belongs to the police chief. Um, but that's all, man. That's all after the fact um, and very unreliable. I don't I don't believe it at all. I want to add something to this uh, because I did hear there's a Lieutenant Mohanahan, I believe that's how he pronounces his name, from New Hampshire that was on the scene Monahan. that night. Monahan. Yep. John a lot Monahan. of people are talking about what time he arrived and and honest truth is i don't think it i haven't been able to prove that it's ever been established what time he got on scene some people say he was the first responder some people say you know bottom line uh, from what from what i've researched is uh mr atwood the school bus driver points out that mohanahan was on the scene after they'd done the searches after he'd done the search in his own vehicle is when he came across mohanahan so so if we can't establish what time that that guy who was probably off duty, by the way, at the time that he was at the scene, it's going to be really hard to, because uh, I know where this is going with that witness A. So if we can't establish what time Mohanahan was on scene, and then how can we prove witness A's credibility with her statement? I don't think that w- that believing witness A's testimony necessarily believes you, you, you think there's police involvement in, in a criminal manner. Um, here and Lance and I actually spoke with Witness A a couple times um, on on the phone and uh, and she's definitely real and she's actually really credible as far as what she does for a living uh, and everything and actually there are some people in the chat room who know her as well uh, personally we have not personally met her but we have spoken to her um, a couple times I definitely think she is legit about what she saw and I do believe her that she saw. Uh, that SUV. I don't know why there would be lying, um, but she she also has reviewed her phone records um, in this situation and and gave those over to the state police. So they they were aware that she did really make that call that on the ninth. Um, now I, I suppose you know it could have been a different day, maybe that she saw that SUV, but I do absolutely believe her uh, about what she saw. Yeah, I just want to say, uh, Melissa, Melissa McKinnon, uh, good point over there. With uh, I don't understand how everyone else's statements of the night are taken credibly, but not witness A. I think it's just because it, it it confuses the situation. 
And no one else has come forward and, and, be, and been a witness before. I don't, honestly, I don't believe anybody's account of that night with 100% accuracy. You know, even, even the police report that was written, there, there are mistakes in, you know, just like you would have with any case. Um, you know, it's not just witness A, it's, it's uh, Forcier, um, it's Butch Atwood, it's all the police that responded. I mean, it, it was a weird situation. Everybody makes mistakes, and nobody's statement about that night is 100% legit, um, and not because of any conspiracy, just because, um, you know, they, they looked at it and interpreted the scene one way, um, and everybody has different viewpoints, and, uh, you know, the, their, their truth is, is uh, subjective. Yeah, and I'll just add again, I, I do believe in Witness A. I do believe that, that uh, she saw something. I just think her times are off. That's all. And I, I don't really see the conspiratorial angle about police involvement anyway. So I just don't, I just never have bought into to police involvement in Mara's disappearance, period. So this Witness A, regardless of what she saw, really, I don't think it's, it changes a whole lot, really. Now, you don't believe in police involvement or c- police conspiracy on a criminal level, but what about, um, you know, covering, not covering up, but um, uh, realizing that they made a mistake with uh, the investigation and backtracking and, well, yeah, covering their ass. Covering their ass, that does happen. I think that does happen. I, you know, I don't know. I don't know enough to make a, an assumption that way or the other on, on the police in this particular case, uh, you know, that we're just investigating a simple uh, basically a DUI flea that night. I mean, I think, you know, we read too much into what they should have been doing that night, but in, in all honesty, their investigation that night, all that it consisted of, all it really needed to consist of was getting the VIN number off of the car and finding out who the owner of the car was. That was their investigation that night. So, so, you know, again, I, I don't want to get, I don't go down the conspirator role that police didn't do anything, didn't do enough that night. Uh, I mean, it's unfortunate because Morrow probably was still within range to be found that night, and it's unfortunate that they didn't find her. But I just don't, I just don't buy that there's, there's, you know, a lot of wrongdoing that was done that night. Uh, maybe when you look back at it, I'm sure there are things that the police uh, feel like they could have done differently. You know, a lot of people point fingers to this uh, um, Monahan. I think is is how it's pronounced. Uh, this other. Um, officer that was uh, on the scene or came by the scene um i i've spoken to him directly too this was a couple years ago um strikes me and he's now like uh, if if memory serves me correctly he's actually chief of a small municipality out there now um he's a good guy uh smart um and he doesn't really understand how he how he got caught up or swept up in that i think it's just a distraction um you know any of this talk about police involvement I'd love it if, if Chief Williams uh, was a part of this because he's a uh, he's a he's a dick. Uh, you know, I he's chased me off off his property. Uh, I don't like the guy at all, but uh, he didn't have anything to do with whatever happened to Maura Murray. I will say this on Mahanahan. Uh, I, I think he owes it to the family to to step forward and, and tell him, you know, if anything, just what he saw that night. Because uh, he was on scene. There's no question about that. He was on scene, whether he was in an official capacity, official duty capacity or not, he was on scene that night. And I think he should should talk to the family. I do, do not understand that. The witness who saw the red truck also saw John Monahan um, in his cruiser. 
uh, about eight o'clock, I believe, was the was the time. And she actually knew John Monahan personally. They knew each other, and uh, once they recognized each other, they acknowledged that. And he understood that it wasn't Mora. Well, one thing I want to mention: we actually did get an email today um, from another witness who drove by the site uh, on February 9th. Um, and and it's nothing groundbreaking, I won't say. Should we read this email? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah? Okay. This person says, uh, Myself, my friend, and my cousin drove by Mora's car that night she went missing. I can tell you that the car was on the wrong side of the road facing the wrong direction. I didn't see anyone in or near the car. I don't recall seeing any lights in the car either. I'm sorry, but I, but I cannot recollect the exact time. But I was driving to the jail to drop off money for a friend. I don't think they keep a record like that uh, this long but I know I had to sign in the money. So there might be, there may be a record at some point. I wasn't there for long as I do not know if, uh, as I do know it was past visiting hours. So I'd say I was there maybe 10 minutes after I left. I went back on the same way I came and stopped at the right aid, maybe there five minutes and then headed back to Lincoln on my way back. When I came up to where the car was, I saw a cop car, not a hundred percent sure if it was a sedan or an SUV. Um, but this person saw a cop, a cop car, um, fire truck and an ambulance when i got back home in lincoln i saw a news report about mora though at the time i don't think they said her name and told the person i was living with that i drove past that she told me to go to the pd and fill out a report i did and was told if they needed more info they'd contact me no one ever did years went by and i always always wondered about her and what happened i never contacted anyone because honestly i never knew there was any investigation still going on until uh this friend of of hers uh who is a listener of this um podcast uh started talking about it with her and uh and so that's basically that's that email so i think that's really inspiring to hear that that there really are people out there who there are more people out there because uh, Butch Atwood had said that that he saw he heard at least a few cars. So um, we're we're talking that there should be a couple more witnesses of that. So wonder if anyone um, obviously saw anything. So maybe it's just a matter of getting the word out there further. Um, but thank you to that uh, insightful listener um, who who asked this person to email us. One one thing about the uh, the number of witnesses that you mentioned you know, driving along there that had to have been there. Now, maybe they didn't come forward to share a story just, you know, about seeing a car on the side of the road. That's not very interesting. But don't you think if Mora was running down the road that more witnesses, some of those witnesses would have come forward with that? We don't have any witnesses saying that Mora was running down the road or trying to get away from the scene. Surely somebody would have seen her. It's not like she can jump over the snowbank and hide when these cars are coming with the snowbanks the way that they were. Um, this just uh, leads me to believe that the fact that we don't have that supports my tandem car theory a little bit. I've never bought into James's tandem car theory. Uh, you know, I do think it's very possible that she got into another car, but I don't necessarily think that anything nefarious could have happened. Uh, it's, I mean, it could have happened, but it could have just easily been somebody that took her up the road five miles and let her off and never thought back to that night again. Uh, we got to remember this case, while it's popular uh, amongst people like us and, and on the Internet and, and, and a little bit, it's not really that well known still. And if you have people that are just passing through, 
it's very possible that they just helped Mara out that night and never thought back to that night again. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people up there even um, are surprised when you bring it up as, a, as an open investigation. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. Yeah, it boggles my mind that, uh, you know, there's so many people that know about this, this story and this mystery, and yet there are even more, ten times more, a hundred times more that don't. It's just completely off their radar. Um, but, you know, I think you, you look at probability, uh, you know, again, if somebody picked up more just to take her five, five, uh, five miles down the road, um, is it probable that they're also in that group that never heard about this case again? Wouldn't they remember? I mean, that's kind of odd. In the middle of winter, you pick up a woman and, and take her five miles. I know I might have that in the back of my mind. And at one, at some point in time, come across Morris' story and put two and two together. Um, but uh, you know, I'm sold on the tandem car theory. That's that's where I'm putting my credibility and uh, <laughs> and my name. Uh, you know, God help me. Yeah, <laughs> you know, the, 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 I've thought about the the tandem uh, tandem theory for a long time. You know, but then we, we've, I'm sure I've talked to James about this before. It's you know, they'd have to have great timing. I mean, if they were ahead of Mara and she wrecked, they would have to know to turn around, go back, avoid the school bus driver, kind of hide out until the, everything kind of cleared off, and then pick up Mara. And if they were behind Mara and she wrecked, it's the same kind of thing. You know, they're going to roll up on the scene with witnesses looking from both sides of the road at the wreck, and, they're I mean, they're going to grab Mara right away and, and take her up down the road. Uh, the school bus driver came after the wreck. So they, but, they, yeah. but. No matter what, somebody had, somebody that night, no matter what, had perfect timing. It was either Mora running away. I agree. It was either somebody abducting her or somebody traveling in a tandem car. The only thing we know for sure is that somebody had perfect timing. That is very true. That is very I true. I sound like that guy on, uh, on, on Ancient Aliens and I, <laughs> whenever I go like that. Aliens. Giorgio Sukalos. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not saying it was a tandem driver. But it was a tandem driver. Well, either they had uh, either they had perfect timing or they had just amazing luck, no matter what the case was. Yeah, and uh, another, I want to bring up another point. Uh, uh, we we talk about the fact that there was that the they did searches and there's no footprints and therefore it excludes her being in the woods. I yeah, you know, I just don't buy into that. I mean, how many people have gone missing? And and no, and they've done searches. Uh, they've, they've had tons of hundreds of volunteers out, and they never find it and that, find the person. And then all of a sudden, lo and behold, three five months later, the person's found right where they were doing the searches. So, yeah, I just don't. I have never been able to exclude the fact that she went off into the woods just based on the fact that that they did searches and didn't find anything. I do think Mora was um, abducted. That that is my personal. Um theory or opinion, I guess. Um, I don't really have a theory. Um, I just, I just find it unlikely, um, that, that Mora was, I guess, driven away by a friend. Um, obviously I could see her have gotten in, into a car. Um, but as far as, yeah, someone, someone that she was driving in tandem with, I don't, I don't buy it. Um, and I know you've done countless hours of research, James. Yeah. If it was an abductor, okay, and in a world with Ariel Castro, I will admit anything is possible. But think about it. Um, you know, t- I, I know Tim, and uh, you've you've had some experience um, 
you know, in Hollywood, you might know a little bit about uh, the script building process. There's a big rule when you're writing a screenplay and, and it's you get one coincidence. You don't get two, you know, because nobody will ever believe it. In order for us to believe that Mora was abducted, we have to imagine that she's essentially living the plot of Psycho. You know, she she went out. She's already on this weird adventure. She's already, uh, you know, done something that's not typical for her. She's gone off. So that's one weird thing that we have to buy. And we know that's a fact. She's heading out. She wrote that email to professors. There's a death in the family, which was a lie. She's going up into the North Country, which doesn't make any sense for that day. Um, she's leaving school behind. Um, she's Janet Lee in Psycho, and, and, and then she runs into a serial killer out there. Um, it's really hard to, to get behind that. Um, the, the probability that that serial killer happened upon her in that moment, um, it would make her, I, I, I refuse to believe, I, re, I refuse to live in that universe because it would make, it, it's so unlucky that it, 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 to me that, you know, that, that negates any sort of judgment in the universe, any sort of God, any sort of higher power. I can't imagine that happening. No, I agree with James. I agree with James. There, uh, you know, that that would be some awful luck for somebody. Uh, and for one, you know, look at the she had two wrecks in the span of forty eight hours, and that is not normal for anyone. And to have all this stuff that seems to be snowballing against her, and then to come out and to meet a serial killer, I mean that that would be. I mean, it, it could it happen? Yes, it could happen. But I think another thing that people. Half, I have to keep driving this point home. It was dark out. We're in the middle of nowhere. This is not an opportune time for an abduction to take place. I now, yes, somebody could have stopped to help a stranded motorist and then came up with a plan right on, on spot there. But you have to add that element in. It was dark out, and somebody driving by is not going to be able to identify if this is a, a stranded female or a stranded male. They're going to have to actually stop, get out of their car, go and check on them, and then, oh, here's an opportunity. And, and I, that's just too much for me. We never said serial killer, really, right. I, I would say. I think we've only really said yeah, opportunistic that's, that's killer. Um, mm -hmm. or, and, oper or, yeah, like it, an opportunity. I, and I agree that the chances of a serial killer happening to be on that road at that time are very, very unlikely. But I also think sort of the inverse is true in that if she has been away alive for 12 years, those odds are just as outstanding as her uh being abducted by a killer even more in my in my mind to be honest because they both happen i i know and and the argument is well that happens all the time people people run away they get away there it happens all the time well people also get murdered all the time she's having coffee in sherbrooke <laughs> well we would have found her there's some sightings up there incredible sight i don't know that's that's where i'm at with that argument, would the highest probability point to Clint's theory? And I, I guess that's that's a really My good question. Um, thank right. you, Megan. I think I think that's right, though. I, I think that the highest probability, even to me, and I don't believe in it, but I think the highest probability is that she uh, died of exposure or um, you know suicide. I I have a hard time believing personally that she went to. Uh, New Hampshire to commit suicide, but I could absolutely believe that that is what happened to her. And as far as just you know dying of exposure, I know we get that a lot. She didn't. She didn't go right in those woods. There's no. There's no snow tracks. No foot tracks at all. She would have had to have run either up Old Peter's Road, which 
maybe you know had some snow on it too maybe they would have been able to track some footprints or she would have had to have run outside of the search radius at least two and a half miles outside of the road uh outside ice two and a half miles from the accident site or she got into somebody's car i just want to comment on uh on that comment there uh tim doesn't believe because all of this work would seem trivial uh that's actually not true at all um this this work isn't isn't a we're not we're not doing it because the you know we want recognition for the work or we're going to get frustrated because you know it wasn't our theory like there's a point of what we're doing here so sorry if that made me a little bit upset but it's not because we're looking at this and saying oh my god we have to like make this work now because it's it's not going to be worth it for us this is not a strategic stance by uh, by me or, or Lance or both of us. Um, this is what we feel after looking into it um, as deeply as we have since the, the podcast started and even before that. And I, and I want to definitely to touch on that, obviously, because this is my theory, the suicide theory. And I do not believe for one minute that this is a popular theory with this case. Believe me, I've heard about it uh, constantly. I, I don't believe this is a popular theory. Uh, now, how I came about the suicide theory. Uh, you know, when I watched the disappeared episode and I told you guys that this was, that was the episode that kind of got me into this case. I did not walk away from that thinking Mara went and killed herself. I, you know, suicide wasn't on my mind at all. You know, I thought she succumbed to the elements and, and I based that on a couple of things. But, you know, when I, when I did my research, all I was trying to do was simplify the case make the fact make the facts known and get get all the muddy waters cleared out that's all i was trying to do and what stuck out to me over and over again was this constant protest against suicide by family members and it was everywhere and to me when every time i'd hear that you know the first couple times i probably didn't think much of it but after that it's like you know why do i keep here why is there such a protest to the suicide notion and that's kind of when I started looking into the suicide angle. I, I never tried to get into Mara's head. That's not something I, I know I'm not capable of getting into her head and trying to understand her. And I don't take a scenario like, you know, the, her breakdown at work and come to the conclusion that, oh, she's suicidal because she had her breakdown at work. You know, I look at what people have said because I can't go. The police aren't saying a whole lot, so I can't really go get too deep into what they're saying about the case. I have to look at what actual people that are involved in the case, the family members are saying, whether they're meaning to say it directly or not, there's a lot of talk about suicide. And it, it doesn't come from reporters grilling them. It doesn't come from the police, from what I could tell, because I, I've heard what the police have said, and I didn't jump to suicide. But the family, uh, when you hear them, when you hear them uh, protest suicide a lot, you know, it makes, made me want to look into that more. And that's kind of how, how it started. John Smith says uh, suicide was in the air that night. And according to the logs, um, Cecil Smith came from a suicide attempt and went to a suicide attempt afterwards. Um, so that that is may, maybe and, you know, to what John's saying, he's saying that that's just what happened that night in the area. So maybe they just like shot their mind. Yeah, they just kind of chalked it up. But that's false. That's false. It's completely false. And it's proven to be false. Fred Murray is the person that, that introduced suicide to this picture. If you think about it, again, we go back to the accident site. The, the police are investigating a DUI fleet. They are not sitting there theorizing that the person that drove this car is suicidal. They, they locked her car up and actually hit it. 
so she couldn't come get it. So they, they figured she was still alive. I, the suicide theory did not come from anybody but Fred Murray. It's in the 911 log, and it's also uh, from when James Renner interviewed Lieutenant John Scarenza. It's, it's the first thing he said was out of Fred's mouth when he called 911. Is my daughter came up there to do personal harm to herself. So to, to spin this narrative that the police are pushing suicide is completely false. That's an interesting point that you just brought up about where her car was, that they actually took it, because um, that was one of my questions, or our questions as well, was that, uh, um, you know, why was it brought uh, to Lavoie's home and not, you know, an official impound lot or something, and uh, it never, uh, it's, it's, it's good, it never... Um, never occurred to to us that uh it was brought there to hide it from whoever had left it because they figured that it was a person who was um fleeing um a drunk driving charge that's what you're saying right yes if you've seen i have a picture of lavoy's lot i think i sent it to you guys but it his lot uh, part of it extends right next to dartmouth uh highway which is a pretty busy highway anybody can access those vehicles and and that car ended up actually sitting there for over two years, uh, unlocked. So if you were really thinking that the police are investigating a murder uh, situation, do you really think they're going to leave one of the best pieces of evidence out in the open for several years, unlocked? Uh, I wasn't trying to be an yes, ass. Yes, that's a good point. Nothing. I was just no, <laughs> just <bringing laughs> no, no. It's a good point. It, it just came just came to my mind as I was talking about. Uh, where her car, why her car would have had to have been secured that night and not just taken to the lot and just left there is because it was wide out in the open. Now, you know, I think he puts cars behind his garage, not just along the road, but, you know, I don't know what the situation was that night. He may not have been able to. And the only way to, if he has to secure it, he's probably going to put it inside a garage. And if his garage at his business is full already, then it might end up in his house. What, what do you guys think uh, actually happened to Maura's car? Where, where did that, uh, I mean, I know uh, maybe you don't speculate about it, but I mean, how do you guys feel about the damage and the where the car ended up? I mean, how did this come to be? I've always believed Dick Guy, the TV guy, um, the EMT that showed up on site, I like his uh, theory on it, um, that she impacted the corner um, on the left side of the road uh, in front of the Westman's house. And that's what did the damage to the front left part of her car. And the centrifugal force uh, spun her around and she impacted the snowbank. Um, she never hit a tree. She never went over the snowbank. She never hit another car like John Healy thinks. Um, I believe uh, I believe Dick Guy's take on it. Yeah, I, I don't have anything too much to contribute. I think on the Westman side of the road, there's a little mound that goes up, and it's possible that uh, her car hit on onto that mound, or the, I don't know what you would call it, overlap, and that caused her to spin around. That would just be my my basic hunch uh, as, as far as whether it hit a tree or not. Uh, there is some disputable evidence on that. There's uh, not so much that her car hit a tree, but there's, there is, uh, it's been stuff said that there was some scarring on a tree out that way. Not the one with the ribbon on it, by the way, but a different tree. But regardless, I don't really see where, where that makes a big difference one way or the other. And that's just my personal opinion. I guess if you buy into the police conspiracy, then, then maybe you would look at that harder, but I just haven't looked at that. 
Kevin Driscoll asks uh, asks John really in the chat room, but uh, he asks, "What do the locals think um, happened?" And uh, I know what what John would say here, um, but uh, he he's gonna he he will say that most of the locals do believe that she was abducted, um, and to me that that speaks to the people up there know the area better than we do. You know, they know the people, they know their neighbors, they know their friends and neighbors, they know the people around there and how some of them are um, opportunistic uh, dirtbags, potentially. Um, And a lot of them are good people up there. We've met a lot of people, but they believe that. I mean, it's just interesting to me. And uh, and as far as the Murrays and and Fred Murray saying that uh, that she went there to kill herself at first, he he took that back pretty quickly, um, and and believes from one of the first you know one of really one of the first days that uh, she was abducted as well. Um, I definitely, I mean, obviously the Murray family would know more or better than anybody. You know, they they don't think she was suicidal. Um, so they, you know, what do you think, Lance? Well, uh, there was some talk about, uh, Fred saying, uh, or taking back the suicide theory because, uh, the police wouldn't, um, be as proactive in looking for her if they thought that, uh, you know, it was a suicide as opposed to an abduction, which, you know, the theory was that he, he, um, uh, he, he took that back and, and and started with the um she was abducted by some local dirtbag uh so that they would be more proactive in the investigation that's just a theory i'm not saying that i agree with it or not but um you are right i mean there's 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 a you know there's scumbags there are creeps everywhere Mm -hmm. um and and opportunities do happen i remember when we first started this i i was so far not thinking that this was some sort of opportunistic uh person who saw who saw something uh you know something uh that he could capitalize on. Um, and, you know, I think we misuse the word serial killer or the phrase serial killer. I don't really think that it's a serial killer. I mean, if someone did grab her, maybe it was something, you know, it was gone wrong. She obviously would have gone with this person uh, because there was some sort of trust there. Uh, there's no, someone brought up in the, in the chat, uh, no, there was no uh, screaming. No one heard me screaming. So was she, was she not forced in the car? That would suggest that there'd be some sort of trust. But, you know, the more we, the more we talk about this, the more, you know, you know, everyone seems to have really good arguments for each uh for each case um again going back to clint's point about the the car being put in uh in lavoy's um personal garage makes total sense that it'd be put there to keep the person away from it uh, who might have a you know a dui against them um but you know when we first heard that it was really strange that that was uh that was a case so they must be covering something up so you know just like always like i get a new uh i get a new opinion you know pretty much by the minute i get a, you know a new way to look at it another way that the tandem driver situation could have played out is that um you know it was a friend or a family member that was traveling with her and uh and she either they got to where they're going and then something violent happened there or um or she hit her head a little too hard on the car during the accident died where they were at you know whatever condo they did end up renting um and then something happened i can buy into to, to that 
um, sooner than I would buy into an, an abduction murder somewhere else with a stranger. Um, and that might explain why we've never seen her, uh, but or, or definitively uh, seen her. That's just another way that the Tina Car thing could have could have went. And I wanted to add on the suicide thing again, and, and the fact that, that Fred did change, uh, did change, and he went with abduction, but it didn't happen as quickly as it maybe is being perceived. Uh, he did his first pleas were to Mara uh, in the media. Uh, they weren't to an abductor. They never were to an abductor. It was always tomorrow to come back, work out whatever issues they had. And again, this is somebody that knows her better than any, any of us, anybody else, somebody that spent the last known days with her. And so if he's making pleas to her, I doesn't, it just kind of tells me he doesn't really buy into the abduction theory. I, you know, I, I think it was a strategy they used uh, once they realized that police, police were, by the way, Police were grilling these people, this family, about suicide. And this is their own accounts. This is the family members' accounts. The police were pushing suicide because it's what they believed happened to them, believed happened to Mara. And so family, uh, family, I think, had to find a way to get the focus off of that. And so that is why, that is kind of where the abduction theory just kind of came out of nowhere from what I've been able to research. I have a question for Lance and Tim real quick. Um, I, I've been wondering about this lately. You know, as as your your podcast and uh, and and everything, you know, it it really takes off, um, and you know, all these people are coming to it, and it's become such a lightning rod for the case. Where's the Murrays? Why why are none of the Murrays coming on your podcast on your uh, on, on this, uh, you know, the speaking to you directly. I mean, um, I, I, again, I've never seen the family of a missing person act the way that this family acts. Um, fair question. We, uh, we have spoken with a, a few members of the family, um, and never really actually, uh, directly asked Fred or, or anyone to actually come on the podcast. Um, we really, uh, yeah. Well, I mean, uh, to be the uh, the the representatives, uh, the people that we've talked to who uh, represent the family, um, this is going to be really surprising to you, James. They really don't like you. <laughs> and uh, and I know, I know. It's yeah. nuts. But you know, for for the, like maybe the first dozen episodes, they thought that you were probably a co-producer for the podcast. So there was there was no there was no um, there was no way to uh, to get past that for a little while. Sometime in the early '80s, Ario Speedwagon's airplane made an unannounced middle of the night landing. This is my friend Kyle McLaughlin, the star of Twin Peaks, and he's telling me about how he discovered a real life Twin Peaks in rural North Carolina, not far from where he filmed Blue Velvet. What was on the plane was copious amounts of drugs coming in from South America. Supposedly, Pablo Escobar went looking for other spots, quiet, out-of-the-way places to bring in his cocaine. My name is Joshua Davis, and I'm an investigative reporter. Kyle and I talk all the time about the strange things we come across, but nothing was quite as strange as what we found in Varnumtown, North Carolina. There's crooked cops, brother against brother. Everyone's got a story to tell, but does the truth even exist? Welcome to Varnum Town.
Varnum Town is available wherever you listen to podcasts. Kickoff for Super Bowl 34. The Titans Rams 2000 Super Bowl, an instant classic. Hours after the game, two men were stabbed in the street, accused of being in the middle, the greatest linebacker in NFL history. Ray Lewis and two friends are charged with murder. The nation's eyes were glued to their televisions. The trial concluded and the verdicts came back. Not guilty. What you can learn from all this is that big cases make for big mistakes. Look what happened to O.J. Simpson. And look what happened to Ray Lewis. Lewis went on to have a Hall of Fame career, but questions around that night in Atlanta still remain. So what do you think they're hiding? They know what happened. They know exactly what happened. After 20 years, it's time to get to the bottom line truth. From Tenderfoot TV, I'm Tim Livingston, and this is The Raven. Listen for free on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. For ad-free listening and early access, subscribe to Tenderfoot Plus on tenderfootplus.com. No matter how far you run from them, childhood tragedies have a way of catching back up with you. So is true of elite scuba diver Veronica West, who is about to encounter something unexplainable at the bottom of the ocean, something that will draw her back to her home on Sinclair Island, Maine. There, she'll lead a dangerous rescue mission to the bottom of the Bay of Fundy, home of the world's largest tides, and something horrific down in the depths. Listen to Narcosis, the latest horror fiction show on Realm's premier horror channel, Undertow. Narcosis is available now. Search for Undertow or Narcosis wherever podcasts are served. New England is known for its charming towns, comforting foods, and of course its historical contributions. But the Down East region can have a dark side. I'm investigative journalist Kylie Lowe, and on my weekly podcast, Dark Down East, I dig into both decades-old and modern-day cases from my home state of Maine and the greater New England area. In each episode of Dark Down East, I seek insight from law enforcement officials, family members, and other loved ones who are both deeply familiar with the cases and the individuals at the heart of them. Join me as I unveil intricacies of these stories that are often overlooked, honor the grit of those searching for justice, and shine a light on cases that you aren't hearing on other podcasts. Listen to Dark Down East now, wherever you're listening. Canada, a vast idyllic land filled with beavers, loons, lumberjacks, and polite, friendly folks. We have those things for sure, but there's a darker side to the great white north, full of mystery, crime, the paranormal, and dark history. Join me, Mike Brown, and co-host Matthew Stockton every Monday for the Dark Poutine Podcast as we tell dark stories from north of the 49th parallel with the Ottawa game covering more international cases. You can listen to Dark Poutine for free wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And there has been, um, well, we have sort of, you know, indirectly um, communicated with uh, with Mr. Murray, and I, I believe that th- there was a there was a good chance we were going to be working together um, on uh, on a uh, in 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 a capacity. I'm not sure 100 percent if that's going to happen at this point. Um, hopefully, we can tell you know be a little less cryptic about this in the future. But uh, um, we we do believe that uh, that. You know he appreciates what uh, what it is this podcast is trying to achieve, 
And, and again, we haven't directly asked him or anybody. Um, I think if we were to ask Fred directly, he may, um, he may come on or grant us maybe a, a camera interview or something like that. But again, hasn't, uh, hasn't happened yet. I think the Murrays are really protective, um, as, as I'm sure a lot of people know. And I think it's just because of, uh, rumors and, and, Things that that people have said about uh, their family and about Mora, and things that they really take personally, um, to to a point where uh, you know it really bothers them, and they can't trust a lot of media. and And as Lance alluded to, they were um, positive at first that that uh, they couldn't trust us as well. And I think they are coming around, and maybe um, maybe we get there at some point. And uh, and Mandy in the chat room men- mentions there would be no podcast without James. Yeah, we're not blog. we're not saying that that we're you know we did it all on our own. James had like the wealth of information out there, mm-hmm. and and she's probably right. I mean, you know, the, the, he, James is the reason we heard about this case in the first place. Um, you know, j- just because uh, the the Murrays and James don't agree, yeah, it doesn't mean that that we're not a different entity here. And and Tarek, I, I hope I'm pronouncing the name right, says Fred doesn't owe us anything, though. Yeah, no, I, I don't like, I, I don't get all the, uh, I, I don't get all the disrespect and, and, and hate that comes with this stuff. What you guys are doing is completely separate, um, and it's its own thing, and it's gotten more attention lately than, than my blog has. So, um, yeah, but anyways, uh, I, I, we could be taking this time talking about other other issues and questions. Um, if you do ever get a chance to talk to Fred directly, um, you know, somebody should put to him what in the world Sarah Alfieri said to him. You know, what is this, you know, quote unquote true story that Sarah Alfieri told him? We'll definitely uh, put the question to him if we get the opportunity to do so. Um, it could be something where it's, uh, you know, it's, it's not as, as mysterious and dark as uh, as as maybe originally perceived, did she tell you that directly, or this was when you visited her and she told you this directly? I, I'm trying to put this together again in my head. Clint has the story, right? Clint knows. I, I, I'll, I'll let him. I thought that. I remember uh, it was from Helena Murray that you got that, and I don't think she understood what you were asking her. So I think there was some confusion there that kind of led to, you said that, that, uh, you know, they know this real, or she told you that they know the real story and, and Fred knows everything that he needs to know from his, from her friends. But I don't really think there was a bombshell there. I just think that that just meant that, that Fred has been openly communicating with Mara's friends and they've told him everything they know. And I think it kind of got ran with. Yeah, I agree. Really? No, I disagree. I, I, I respectfully disagree. Um, the, the, the report I got from Helena, who is, is, uh, is as related to Maura Murray as I am, um, she, you know, she said that, uh, that Sarah told the story once, and she told it to Fred, and she will never repeat it, and don't even try to contact her. Well, of course, when I contacted her, um, she reacted uh, in a very strange manner, not just because I'm some white guy that shows up in, you know, southeast Boston knocking on her door one night, 
Um, you know, she's not react. I, I've talked to witnesses of, of murder cases. I've, I've talked to suspects. I've talked to literal killers. Nobody reacted as viscerally as Sarah Alfieri did when I knocked on her door. Um, you know, I, I can tell you that the police are just as frustrated with the information they get out of Sarah and Kate Markopoulos as I am. Um, they have never been completely forthcoming with the police. Um, so why, what are they, what, what did, I, I want to know what Sarah said to Fred. And, and you said it yourself, James, you said that she told Fred the real story, but we don't know the context of what the real story means. So that it's easy to read into that and think, boy, that must be something juicy, but it, Real story could be, you know, what they did at work that Sunday, uh, this day after the wreck, because Mara and, and uh, Sarah did work together the next day. And and by the way, Mara didn't even tell Sarah about wrecking that night, the night before. So After the live show aired, we got an email from a representative of the Murray family who said this, and I quote, what I told James Renner was that I had spoken to Sarah and that she had said she had talked to Fred and the police and that she had no intention of talking to anyone else. Smart girl. Look at what he did to Kate after she spoke with him. End quote. Maura had some characteristics of being a mysterious person, um, which uh, could be in line with her just going to get away for a week. You know, I mean, she, one of her high school friends, and I think it was the disappeared episode, said that she went to Boston for a day and didn't tell anybody. This, this is a pattern that that she, that she developed, um, is is sort of being a mysterious person and, and even taking trips by herself. She came back from Boston. <laughs> well, I don't think that uh, I don't think that um, just you know someone who's going on a you know needs to get away and doesn't tell people that. They, they went to Boston for a day. I don't think that even suggests that she's a mysterious person. I just, I mean, I know tons of people that just, you know, go and take a day trip somewhere and you just don't even think about it. She could just be a uh, absent-minded person, you know, no need to, to contact anybody about it. Um, again, we're looking back at it now. James, a good point. Like, well, she came back from there, you know, and we're only looking at this now because she didn't come back from New Hampshire. Well, what if she didn't come back from Boston? Would I mean, would we be... Talking about her having, uh, you know, jumped off a bridge or something like that, or you know, like committed or committed suicide that way. I mean, probably. Yeah. We, I mean, we definitely would have been talking about her running away. Is is the the story that Sarah Alfieri, um, the real the real story that that Sarah told Fred? Is that is that something that you really just want to know for your own um, for your own? Good, I guess, or is that something that you think would really lead to solving the case? Like, because I think that Sarah told police uh, that as well. Would, mm, I don't think she did. I, I honestly don't think Sarah was forthcoming with police. I think she might have told Fred what really happened, um, and I think it, it was an answer that was either uh, going to be upsetting to the family or embarrassing for Mora. Uh, I don't think Sarah and Kate have ever been completely forthcoming with police, um, according to the, the, the police that worked on the case that I spoke to. Um, I, uh, and yes, I absolutely think it, it could help figure out uh, what happened to Mora. You know, the past is prologue. Um, what happened that weekend? And what happened at that party? And what happened the day after? I think would, knowing that would help us get closer to um, 
what Moore's intentions were driving up into the North Country. Yeah, and what if it didn't? When we're, talk, when we're talking about uh, Kate and Sarah, I, I do again want to bring this up because it's you know we're talking about two gals that I just honestly don't see a huge connection with. Uh, they're they're two years apart in age. One's an athlete. One's an art student. I don't know that they necessarily would hang out if it wasn't for Mara. I don't think they are in contact now. That's just a guess. I don't know these people, but uh, my opinion is this is a very small relationship between the two. And so if we're going to try to tie some big 12, 13, 14 year conspiracy between two gals that probably aren't even friends, you know, that, that to me is a little bit of a stretch. And why, what would be their motive? What would be their motive for, for conspiring against a friend that they didn't know for more than two or three years in Mara, unless they were involved, unless you say they were involved. One very good motive would be to protect an abused woman. Yeah, that's a good motive. If you guys, for a second, both knew um, that Mora met an untimely end uh, at the hands of somebody, Maybe stop short of saying the person's name, or uh, but but what do you think? How how would that have gone down? Or maybe you know who would be a likely person who may have done something like that? I think it would have been uh, random. I think it would have been a hit and run kind of scenario. Somebody that wasn't paying full attention that night accidentally hit her as she was walking alongside the road and then covered it up. That's that would be my number one guess for any kind of sinister thing happening tomorrow that way. I don't think she's dead. If you guys were given unlimited time and and budget uh, and resources, what what would you do to try to bring closure here in this case? Me personally, I would uh, I would like to actually interview some folks. Uh, Lieutenant John Scarenza, the retired guy that was in charge of the case, would be first on my list. I would like to interview some people and and try to get some real answers because this is this is one thing I wanted to bring up tonight is we've had a lot of stories done on this case a lot of different coverage over the years and it's involved family members but almost all of the coverage has never been investigative it's always been a rehash of basic facts getting some quotes from the family and and that's the kind of stories that we have. We're not really hearing a full picture of this this case. We we have not had a true investigation, investigative uh, type story done on this case. And that's that. If I if I had the resources, that would be the avenue I would go on because that's that's what I would be best at. I'd love to take a trip to Killarney, Ireland, uh, just to poke yeah. around for a weekend. Um, when I uh, visited. Fred's uh, uh, house in Weymouth um, that uh, was going into foreclosure at the time of, of Moore's disappearance. Uh, there were um, a lot of uh, a lot of junk outside the house and mail addressed to Fred and all this stuff that belonged to Fred. And among all that junk was a municipal map of Killarney, Ireland, uh, that you could only get by visiting. Ireland. There's a trip that took place there. I don't know that it's related. Um, I honestly don't think Fred knows where Mora is. Put him on it. Um, but just for my own peace of mind um, and for some Guinness, <laughs> uh, I, yeah, I'd love to visit uh, Killarney. I want to be clear on this. I, I think the uh, there has been a little bit of misrepresentation about 
the FBI in this case because the FBI worked this case uh, very early on from both Boston and New and Vermont. And I don't think I think there's been a narrative spun that that the FBI has been in the dark about this case, and that is not the case at all. The Boston FBI which every state, by the way, has a division of the FBI, and anybody can contact their, their local state FBI if they have an issue. So the Boston FBI got involved in Mass, Mass, in uh, UMass area, and they interviewed all of Mars' friends and, and family and all that stuff, but the Vermont FBI was also involved in the case early on. And about four months in, they were briefed on everything that, that the police had about the case, and it was at that time that they didn't. They, they kind of walked away from the case. Uh, they tried to link it with the Brianna Maitland disappearance, and they realized that those two cases were not connected. And from what the evidence that was presented to them, uh, evidently it wasn't compelling enough for them to get involved. So, so there is kind of a false narrative, I think, being spun that the FBI uh, is just waiting to get into in, into this case, waiting for somebody to to invite them in, and I I don't buy that at all. I agree with Clint. Okay, and I lost my lost my what my second thing I was wanted to oh I wanted to address the Faith Westman nine one one call one one time and this is mostly opinion, but it's I'm trying to use some common sense here because everybody keeps talking about the man smoking the cigarette in Mara's car, and if you think about it. When somebody calls 911, especially somebody that's not involved with the, the accident, per se, they don't have any idea what's going on. All they know is they see, maybe they heard something, maybe they see a shadow moving around. The 911 operator is going to be the person that's trying, that has the responsibility of getting the information out. The 911 operator is going to say, what do you see? The person on the other end is going to respond. They see a, a red little do, uh, red light or a red dot. It's going to be the 911 operator that feeds the information. They're, they're going to say, like you see, maybe somebody smoking a cigarette. So that, is, that explains why Faith Westman on one account will say, I did not say somebody was smoking a cigarette. Because in probably reality, she was just describing a scene, what she saw that night. And she probably just said to the 911 operator, she saw a little red dot or a red, little red light, and I, 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 my opinion is the 911 operator is the one who tried to get her to expand on that, and that's where that got written into the report. So something like that can it seems minor, but uh, it can obviously cause confusion to the point we're still discussing about it 13 years later, or whatever it is. John Smith uh, is going crazy right now <laughs> in his place. He's like uh, ripping in, his place apart in in the White Mountains. He uh, um, he disagrees. Uh, he says that the dispatcher writes down what is said. The dispatcher would not have made that up or or written that if Faith didn't say that. Uh, I am very okay, calm. Very, John but he's still, he, he couldn't even get the lie out. <laughs> and, and Faith is on record saying she never said that, so she's either lying or. Yeah, it's strange. I mean, I don't want to. Uh, you know, obviously, we don't want to call call anybody a liar. Um, I, I, you know, it's just one of these things that I'm not really sure what to believe. And I, and I'm I don't have any inside info on the 911 call, but I'm just trying to use common sense. I mean, I doubt Faith Westman could sit there and say, "Yeah, I see a 21 year old young lady wearing a Columbia jacket. Uh, looks like she's on her cell phone." 
her husband was in the other room looking at the same scene and he immediately said he thought he saw somebody on a cell phone. So right there, I mean, you have some her, her own husband is, is basically saying there was no man smoking a cigarette in the car. And then you have the witnesses across the street who also said all they saw the whole time was one person and it was a young it was a young female. Yeah, it's definitely very unlikely, I think, that there there was a man smoking a cigarette. Um it's just some discrepancy on if Faith said that or not. So I'm talk in the chat room right now about Cecil Smith and uh, Jeff Williams. And uh, Bill Sweeney I just learned that Cecil Smith arrested Jeff Williams years later um, for a DUI. And that is, that is true. Um, do, you, do you have any more on that, James? Yeah, I do, actually. Um, so um, I stopped in at uh, Cecil Smith's house. Uh, this was a couple years ago. When I was first researching the the book, and uh, I dropped in on him, and Cecil Smith had just retired, and uh, he was uh, building this compost uh, pile uh, thing in his front yard that was going to heat his house, and he, it was this new business he was starting, compost heat. It was he was really into it, and uh, I stopped in, and <clears throat> we talked about the Murray case, uh, Maura Murray's case for a little while, and uh, you know I said, who should I talk to while I'm here? And he kind of. He kind of gave me a, a funny grin. He said, you ought to go talk to Chief Williams or former Chief Williams. Uh, um, and I said, well, where can I find him? And he directed me to his house. Now, I, I didn't know about their history. Now, so it's Cecil Smith that's directing me to Williams' house. He's like, yeah, go talk to Williams. And I drive into Williams' house thinking everything's hunky-dory. I just had this nice conversation with Cecil Smith. And I, and I knock on Williams' door, and he comes to the door and he's like, what do you want? And, I'm, and I get out. Well, I'm here, a uh, journalist working on the Moore Murray case. And that's as far as I got. And he slammed the door. In, well, before he slammed the door in my face, he said, uh, if you don't get off my property, I'm going to kick your ass. Um, and then he slammed the door in my face. I'm like, what in the world? And uh, so I, I wrote down my contact. And I, I stood there and I wrote down my contact information. And he, got, and he came to the door again. He's like, didn't you hear me? Um, I'm not going to give you another warning. So. I went back to my car, wrote it real quick, and put my contact number under, you know, his windshield wiper, and, and got out of Dodge. And and as soon as I got back to the uh, Nutka Lodge, um, I uh, got on the Wi-Fi and I, I researched their connection. And that's when I learned that Cecil Smith was the person, was the officer that pulled Williams over for the DUI, essentially ending his career. Um, so I think that was Smith's little joke on me. Um, you know, go bug Williams um, and, and sending me off to maybe get my ass kicked. But, um, yeah, Williams uh, is uh, uh, he, he had some he had some trouble. Uh, he's not a nice dude. Um, and uh, um, he's got a heck of a big house for a public servant, especially a retired one. Um, make of that what you will. But I don't think, uh, you know, again, I, I don't think he had anything to do with more Murray. He's just a jackass. <laughs> um, we had a couple of good comments from Alex C. Alex C. said that Sam uh, that Tim Westman told Sam Ledger that they did believe it was a man or a, a someone smoking a cigarette, um, which is sort of fourth person or third person, I guess, at this point. Um, but Alex also asks, what year was Williams's garage built? Do you have any intel on that, James? Uh, it, you know what? When I visited him, this would have been in um, this would have been in 2012. Um, 
It was very new. Uh, so, I, oh, yeah, so, okay. Uh, we're getting at the driving question of whether more is buried in the cement there. No. Okay. Um, you know, I, I'm sure the garage was built after that. Yes. Um, yeah. So go, go, go dig up his garage. I don't have, I don't have a ton to add to, to, uh, the Williams stuff. Uh, I think there's some bad police everywhere. There's some good police everywhere. I, you know, I just, again, I just never buy into any of these conspiracy theories with this case in particular. Tarek, uh, Pasek, uh, says, I would like you guys to talk about James Conrad for a bit. And, uh, I know we had spoken about James Conrad a little bit, uh, James, um, back on one of the episodes that you were on a while back. Uh, and he hasn't really come up on, on the podcast much lately, I don't think. Um, but this is the former New Hampshire state policeman who, uh, insists that, that the state police know that where Mara is buried and, uh, just haven't gotten either a warrant or, um, or are afraid they won't get a conviction and that's why they haven't um gotten you know gotten move the evidence yeah. yeah move forward with this and we've actually heard of behind the scenes that um that there is some movement uh from the New Hampshire state police about this um and we're we still don't know much more than that but uh but that is what we heard that uh yeah yeah well uh in response to Bill Sweeney um I don't know. Where did we hear that Conrad thinks Forcier is responsible? I don't think we heard that specifically. I just think um, put it uh, oh. connecting the dots. It's it seemed like that was where uh, where that was going. What do you guys think? I try not to. It hurts my head. I think James Conrad is a is a. <laughs> I think he's I think he's um, you know another uh, cuckoo bird. Um, you know, he, uh, you know, he had a bone to pick with, um, uh, police. I mean, if anybody knows this guy's background, the reason he's not a policeman anymore is because, uh, there was an incident at the, uh, the department that he worked for where he, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, he, he pulled a loaded gun out, um, and, and threatened to commit suicide inside the station. Um, this, this guy has some, some, some issues. I mean, we all got issues, but we're talking serious issues. Um, you know, so, uh, you know, you, you got to weigh that with, with this information. And to me, he was obviously talking about Forcier, uh, or, you know, Forcier, however you say that. And, um, you know, I just, uh, I've never thought that he had anything to do with it. Yeah. I, I wanted to point out one thing on Mr. Mr. Forcier. Uh, yeah. If, if I had to, if I had to say that, that Mara was was killed by somebody and it wasn't a hit and run, uh, that would be the most logical suspect to me because his house was was in probably the you know closest vicinity besides the school bus driver and the uh, to go to and you know so if I had to pick if I had to to pick one I would pick him as as a suspect as her house uh, that she ran to because I think Mr Atwood. We hear about how he offered Mara assistance that night, and I think it's, it must uh, be understood. I don't think that was a friendly encounter. I don't think it was like, hey, man, come back to my house, stay warm. I think Mr. Atwood told Mara that he was calling the police whether she liked it or not. So I could see why she would not want to go to his house. And Alex goes on to, to ask if James Conrad ever um, named 
who he was talking about or the suspect he said he was talking about it. And we don't think he, he has, uh, we have tried for months actually to try to get in touch with former New Hampshire state trooper, James Conrad. So if, if anyone out there knows him, please, uh, try to connect us. Um, we would love to talk with him, even if it's off the record about, uh, why he, um, wrote those things on the family Facebook page. I mean, and, and if he's not telling the truth, I mean, that's just, that's just downright, uh, awful to do, right. To write that on the, on the family page of a, of a missing girl. I want to add one thing I just saw, I just saw on the, uh, comments section over here, uh, we're talking again about Mr. Atwood and people think maybe, you know, he was one of the last people, if not the last people person to talk to Mara. Was he involved in some way? I mean, there's no way he could have been involved. He was seen leaving her at the site of the accident, going back to his house by the, not just the Westmans, the witnesses that were directly across from where Mara's car was. They were watching. The bus driver left the scene. So for him to be involved with and left Mara by herself alone at the car. So for him to be involved in some something nefarious with Mara, it would have had to happen after the investigation or whatever you want to call it that took place that night. Mara would have had to gone to his house after that and then something happened because he was she, he left her alone. He wouldn't leave her alone if he were planning on abducting her. Oh, here's a good one. Uh, Tom asks, you think there's a connection between uh, David Politis, um, his missing 411 series, and the Maura Murray case? Uh, without getting too into this, um, this is quite another another sort of rabbit hole. We've actually reached out to this author, David Politis, uh, to get his take um, on this. David Politis talks about these missing people from um, these na- mostly national parks throughout the country. And there's really been thousands of, uh, unexplained, uh, disappearances from national parks. And he sort of groups them into clusters and, uh, based on the cluster map that I saw, I can't really see that one is where Mora vanished, but, um, it's pretty interesting. I'm not sure exactly what Davis Politis is saying, but I know he's making a movie as well. He's making a documentary, um, so it, it may be something that we could get involved with uh, with him at some point just to chat. Uh, but I believe he thinks that Bigfoot or aliens had something to do with most of those things, which probably did not happen in this case. Yeah. <laughs> what is the general consensus on the Red Cross call? Um, I think we heard we heard James your uh, your take on this a while ago. Um, if you can maybe refresh our memory and then uh, and then Clint, if you've got an opinion or a take on this, that'd be great. It's it's weird that we're that we're still talking about the Red Cross call um, because, uh, you know, th- this is definitively proven. Um, you know, Scarinza spoke to the person directly who made that call. Um, it was not, uh, it was not as some people believe, more a calling and, and breathing into Bill's uh, cell phone. Um, it was a call from the Red Cross. Uh, they were helping as a liaison between Bill and, uh, um, and the army um, getting his leave. It's weird that we're still talking about that. And I would like to add, uh, I, I agree with James. That, you know, I don't, you know, this was the single point that, that switched my theory, by the way, is when I really looked into this Red Cross call, I was all about believing that Mara was, was someone who succumbed to the elements. That was my original theory. That's what I believed. But then when I really started researching and, and this Red Cross, uh, Red, yeah, this this thing, oh, uh, th- this was kind of spun to the to the media. 
You know, they talked about hearing Mara's voice on the other end of, the, of this, this phone message that was left for Billy. But they, did, they left out the fact that this was uh, turned over to police and police analyzed this phone message and, and, to, and that to them it was just phone static. And that never got brought up. Now, I ain't saying this is family's fault. You know, this is the family and maybe the maybe Sharon and Billy really believe that they were hearing Mara's voice on it. But but it didn't get mentioned ever on the Disappeared show that the police had this phone message in their possession and they actually analyzed it. And to me, if you if you don't even mention that and you're, you're just going to run with the uh, with 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 what the what Sharon and Billy believe, you know, that's just not presenting the the whole side and and it, it can easily lead to speculation and i you know i thought that was mara's voice on the other end until i learned learned that so when i when i thought it was mara's voice i thought that was maybe the last thing she did before she she perished you know she made one desperate phone call but but then you get to thinking about that and she's gonna have to call uh, on a calling card and this girl's dying and she's going to go through all these calling card numbers to get a hold of somebody. I mean, it, it just, it, the whole thing just never, never made a whole lot of sense to me. What we do know is fact from Sharon's own words. And this is not what she told the media. This is what she put in her blog in her little journal that she kept was that, uh, that she contacted the red cross the night before Billy got this mysterious, the morning before Billy got this mysterious phone call, she contacted the Red Cross to get, uh, to let them know that Billy was going to be needing to leave on emergency leave. So it would only make sense that the very next morning, the Red Cross would be trying to get a hold of Billy. John says, but, uh, but Billy said it was from Maura's phone, uh, or phone number. And, uh, the one thing I want to add is that, um, looking at that interview that Billy gave about it, um, I think that's probably why most people take it as, oh, that must have been Mora because he seems so sure in that interview. If, if you don't know what we're talking about, it's in the disappeared episode, I believe. Um, only later, ha you know, has has have we started talking about it being uh, from the Red Cross. So what what do we make out of what John says? Uh, but Billy said it was from Mora's phone. That's not what Sharon said. That's not. That's what not. That's not what Sharon said in her journal. Again, this is something that she kept for herself. It was never really meant for the media. It's never meant for people following the case to to know. She kept notes for herself, and she ended up posting stuff from her journal onto blog, different uh, blogs early uh, in the years that Mara went missing. Uh, in the journal, she says that they nobody could decipher where the, this phone call came from. That they turned it over to their police agencies in Ohio to try to get them to figure it out and they couldn't they couldn't uh, get resolution on that so so for if billy said that it was mara's phone that doesn't really jive with with what sharon said so i have that somewhere actually written the whole journal entry but i, I don't want to read the whole thing here but uh clint you you look so organized over there i feel like every time <laughs> we've talked to you i feel like there was just papers everywhere and like, uh, there you go. Yes, yes. papers on the floor. <laughs> That's all Mara Murray stuff. <laughs> okay, I got everything over here. Can you scatter it around a little more? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so again, uh, they returned to Ohio, and numerous individuals and agencies offered their assistance to them. O eight Ohio L E was given the prepaid calling card number. After two weeks of extensive research. Uh, Ohio LE and a private investigator told me that unless I had the actual calling card information, the numbers that are entered when making the call 
plus the name of the merchant. There's no way to trace the location from which a call is made from a prepaid calling card. Sharon's journal. Right. Oh, you can't see that here. Right there. James, there's uh, a, in, in the chat room, people were asking about uh, the the announcement that uh, that you were going to make um, on your blog uh, last time we had a live show. And uh, and I, I, I'm not sure if you are going to be able to talk about uh, some of this or, or any of this, but I just wanted to give the opportunity to, um, to talk about it because a few people had asked. Yeah. All right. Uh, so each of you uh, in that little square there knows the information uh, that I had um, and probably knows and understands why I uh, understand why I didn't release it. Uh, but for everybody else, uh, some information came in in October through a variety of uh, four or five women contacted me with a similar story. I looked into it. It's a very shocking story. Um, at the time, it was so shocking, it, it uh, kind of made me rethink the entire case. And I began to think that it was more probable that Mora had been murdered. Um, now, some other information luckily came out before I uh, went forward with that information. And the reason why I didn't come out with it right away is I wanted the person who this info is about, uh, I wanted to give them the opportunity to come forward with it on their own. I also wanted to give um, law enforcement some time to speak to my sources. Um, now, now waiting um, for a couple weeks for that info to come out, some more info came in in the form of phone records. And we were able to get some phone records um, of uh, both Bill Roush and Maura Murray. Um, and uh, what those phone records did was um, show definitively that uh, that Bill was in Fort Sill at the time. At least in my mind, the phone record showed definitively that Bill Roush was in Fort Sill at the moment that Mora was um, uh, got into the accident, and went missing in New Hampshire. I don't think there's any way he could have been in New Hampshire. Um, so um, that kind of made the info a little less um, important to share, um, and whether. I, I don't know that that info will be shared uh, or should be or could be. Um, it's possible it will at some point um, in, in a different capacity. Um, but I don't think it's something for the blog, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, and I feel like there's a lot of, well, I know, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that goes on behind the scenes with this that you're not able to, um, you know, you wish you can put everything out there, but there's there's actually like an open investigation with this and, you know, legal issues that you have to deal with if you say the wrong thing. One comment from John Smith here that I wanted to mention. John Smith said that Sharon Roush threatened to sue him 11 years ago um, if he was to share the records. He says the Roushes know a lot more than what they're saying about the relationship between Billy and Mora. That's true. Family has been very protective about what has gotten out to the public, but you know, and I want to, and it sounds like I'm trying to bash the family, and I, I just, I personally want to say that if I was in the same situation as the Murrays, I had a loved one that was missing, I would do whatever, say whatever, whatever I thought would help, and I wouldn't really care if I was, you know, spinning something. I wouldn't care if I, you know, I would just do whatever it took to find my loved one get some kind of closure 
Um, so I don't really look at them as villains at all. So, I, but I, you know, I, I do say from an investigative standpoint that I think there needs to be some deeper looking into some things that we have kind of accepted as fact from just hearing one side of the story. You're talking about the Murray family or the Roush family? Just the whole case, whole case in general, whole case in general. I think there's been, you know, we, you know, the police, obviously it's hard for a journalist when the police aren't saying a whole lot to really get their side in on this, but. You know, we, I don't think we've ever really gotten a, a complete picture on things. We're still arguing about the state of Mara's dor- dorm room. And we have somebody that was at her dorm room the day it was searched. Billy, he could come out today and say, you know, say, hey, police got this all wrong. There was no note left on top of the boxes. You know what he said? The only thing that they've said publicly all these years is there was, a, there was no new note. Now, that to me is misleading, you know, to say, hey, no, there's no new note. That's that's their explanation. That's their whole thing. They're gonna say about the dorm room for for this many years is that there was no new note, and then try to say that the lead investigator was making it up about Mora leaving a personal note to Billy when when and they use a technicality because the note was written by Billy. So therefore, they say, see, he got it wrong. She he, she didn't leave a personal note to Billy. He wrote the note. No, she still left a personal note to Billy. I don't think what the policeman said was was wrong at all. Yeah, you've got a that that's what blows you know it boggles my mind. You've got a you've got a missing woman here, um, and, and for them it was a possible wife um, daughter in law. But I, I, I'm talking about everybody associated with this case. Uh, everybody's using these semantics in order to tell little lies, um, and it's not just little lies. Everybody major in this this case that's associated with Mora has not been forthcoming. They have not been truthful. And again, I can't think of any other case that's 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 quite like this. Um, you know, as a father myself, um, you know, it, and even if it was a friend of mine, if, if you know, uh, if somebody close to me and, and God forbid, uh, you know, a, a relative, a daughter, a, a kid goes missing, I, you know, I'm on I'm on your blog. Every day, I'm on I'm on this video. Uh, I'm in news reports, and I'm opening my door. And yes, please come in here. There's all these skeletons. Let's talk about them so we can get this out of the way, so you can focus on finding my daughter. My life is an open book. Just just find her. And that's not what we got from anybody. That's not what we got from Fred. Not what we got from Bill. It's not what we got from Sharon. It's not what we got from Kate or Sarah. Everybody's covering their own ass. Um, and it, why? If you don't believe that your daughter is still alive, then maybe you don't want uh, everything to be uncovered or everything to be talked about, you know. And I think there's evidence out there that shows that they believe from from just a few weeks into her going missing that she was already dead. I think there's actual evidence that points that way. I, I from what I understand, the family was was coached on on how to kind of act more. You know, not like she talk about her in the past tense. And this was in the f- first few weeks of her going missing. So John Smith is saying the, the family was coached. Uh, oh, come on. He's saying that's actually family members that uh, have said that that is actually family spokespeople that have talked about the fact that people were were criticizing the family for 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 not sounding like they were talking about more in the past tense. And right after that, they did. I mean, they started uh Started, started kind of watching what they said after that because it, early on it was, you know, well, you know, they, they just talked about her in the past tense and people called them out on that early on. 
I, I just think it's tough to to gauge what anyone else would do. You know, what my family would do, what Lance's family would do, you guys as well, uh, anyone listening too. It you know, until you're in that position, it's really tough to say uh, how you would react or or what you would do as far as media. Um, or who you would talk to or feel comfortable talking to or trust or anything like that. It's just really tough. It's just tough to to say that, oh, you know, they haven't done an interview with us. Um, well, they, you know, they're hiding something. You know, I, I just think, uh, I just think it's unfair, I guess. I like the, uh, the question from Ollie there. Mm-hmm. Do Fred and uh, Sharon still speak to each other? Do, do we know if uh, the Rouches and the Murrays still communicate? I don't know. No, I don't know. I spoke to uh, I, I last time I spoke to Bill was um, around October of last year, and uh, what he told me was that um, the last time he's really spoken to Fred directly, and I'm assuming this goes with you know Sharon too. The last time Bill spoke to him directly, Fred told him, and his and this is coming from Bill, um, so take take it for what it's worth, but. Um, he said that Fred told him, move on with your life. And this was very early on. Very, very early on. You don't need to be involved here. Move on with your life. Yeah, I wonder if he was protecting, uh, trying to be protective there. I don't know. It's just crazy to me to think that, that the whole family would go through this for so long and put up this act for so long. I don't think it's an act because I don't think there's closure in it. I don't know that it's an act. What do you, what do you mean you don't think it's an act? I don't think Fred knows where she is. I, and, and I think Moore wants to keep it that way. That's my guess. Uh, and Fred's, Fred's doing everything he can to find her before the police find her. And I think at this point they want, they want access to all the files that they can get on the case. I think they would like resolution. I think they'd like to locate her. Uh, and, and so that's why I think they're still pursuing this. I don't think they think she's alive. In fact, I think they've said it, whether you're talking about direct family or you're talking about Sharon, they've all said that they think that she's passed away. Anyone have anything else uh, you guys want to say? Or um, John or any anyone else out there have anything, uh, any short question, short and to the point question that we can read? Okay. Oh, well, I don't know if the $4,000 is going to be a short question, but we can ask that. <laughs> the one thing that... that... I think about the 4,000 is that it didn't have anything to do with, um, uh, a, a car. Um, I do not, I do not think there's any logical explanation for visiting, uh, eight different ATMs to withdraw $4,000. Nobody that's up to legit business does that. You either write a check and I know I, you're already going to argue the fact that, you know, Getting a used car, you want cash. Okay, sure. But you go to the bank, you know, and, and withdraw that from the teller. You don't go to eight different ATMs. And we're sure that it was eight different ATMs, that it was eight? Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and you know, they, that suggests all sorts of different things. One scenario is that it wasn't Fred that was withdrawing that, that money, that it was it was somebody else that, you know, Mora or whoever that was that had his card and pin and fred has already told us that mora had access to his account um who went and went to those various atms because they couldn't go to a teller because they weren't fred and murray um so 
something's up with the $4,000. There's just no legit explanation in my mind. But you think that, that Mora took or, or Fred gave that money to Mora and then she skipped uh, the country and didn't tell Fred where she was going? I don't know what it, what happened there. I just know it's it's uh, in my I, I it's weird, you know. And I don't think we're being told the the true story about it. I feel like we're being lied to uh, about about that because it just doesn't make any sense. It is an interesting one. There's no doubt about that. Um, John insists that Fred did not give her the cash and everything. We had heard from the family. We we've stated this on the podcast before that. Uh, that the money was put into a, an account that that Maura could access, um, and that was what they what they swear by. And uh, yeah, for them to be lying about that, it's just is just strange to me. It, it I, I almost can't believe it that, that they'd be lying about it. And now John Smith is saying that five hundred dollars was put into the account. You got anything else on that, John? That it's Fred's money. He kept the rest. Okay. I, I I don't really have much to say about the money thing. I just wanted to kind of say one last comment. Uh, uh, the fact that she she went to the White Mountains, I don't think that's really disputed. I mean, we can say what you know, we can dispute or discuss what happened after she got to White Mountains, but she was headed for the White Mountains. That's what her family believes. That's kind of, I mean, it's her favorite place in the entire world. So the question we have to ask is why is she in the White Mountains? She's two weeks into a new semester. I, you know, taking a vacation at that point from nursing clinicals doesn't sound logical to me. Uh, of course, you know, somebody could have a crisis and maybe they need to get away. But to, to risk your education and risk your standing in the, in the clinical rotation that you had to work so hard to get into uh, to go on a little vacation with and then to pack your dorm room up and leave a note on top of the boxes in your dorm room, you know, for, for what, if you're going on vacation. So you can come back and have to unpack your boxes and take the note down that you left for evidently yourself. I mean, we have to, we have to look at why she was in the White Mountains. And I think, uh, you know, that, that to me says a lot that she went to her favorite place in the entire world when things seemed to be spiraling out of control for her. So do you think she left her dorm room intending to kill herself? I think she left her dorm room for her family members because I think she knew that they would be the ones that would have to come out and clean out her dorm room. And I think it was a way to tie up a loose end. Who would she leave that note for? If, If she was the only one that had access to that room and she lived by herself, if she was leaving a note on top of her boxes, would that be for herself to come back to after her vacation? I mean, what would be... What possible sense does that make? Right. It was for Bill. If her dorm room was not left in that state, because this is what the police said. The police said that the note was left on top of her stack boxes on her bed with everything else packed up. If that was an outright lie, we have Billy Roush, who was there the day they searched her dorm room. He could have easily come anywhere. He doesn't have to come on this podcast. He doesn't have to come on James's blog. He could come out and say they are absolutely making that up, and he has never done that. Well, John's asking who saw that note first. He says, yes, she was telling him goodbye. Not just goodbye. Imagine, you know, your your girlfriend, your wife, right? You you go out to the store to get some milk, and you come back, and when you get home, all of her stuff is packed in boxes, and on top of it, it's an email that you sent to her admitting that you had an affair. 
Um, what's your wife trying to tell you? Your wife trying to tell you, fuck you, you know? That's what that note was for. Um, EDL in the chat room says her dorm room wasn't packed up. It, had, it hadn't been unpacked from the uh, Christmas break. I think that's uh, just a theory, yeah. Yeah, that, that was a family-introduced theory, just like the textbooks were a family-introduced theory, just like the drugs and alcohol that were found that police used to, to uh, use as a possible motive for suicide. That was a theory introduced by the family that Mara had a track injury, and that's why she needed Tylenol PM, PM with her. So that it's all family-introduced stuff. Now, it could be true, but, but uh, I'd like to hear a little, maybe somebody else's side to these these issues. Well, once again, I've come away being a lot more confused than going into it. That's what my goal is, to confuse everybody. Just for the record, EDL in the chat room again says that uh, uh, this person went to UMass and says uh, their stuff hadn't been unpacked by that point either. Did he leave a note on top of his boxes? And, and she had a single dorm that she had the following or the the previous fall where she sleep at night uh, she was back for for 10 days at least 10 days probably 14 days at least back to the campus where'd she sleep at night with pa- having packed boxes on her bed uh still waiting to be unpacked right oh, i've moved I, everyone's moved and slept in places where there are boxes surrounding uh surrounding them for days uh and sarah palillo in the chat room says it was only 11 days after uh return from break so you're right in that time frame, Clint, uh, exactly. But I had a buddy in Los Angeles who never, literally never unpacked his uh, apartment for like years. He's not in a place where he feels comfortable. And uh, and maybe that was the case with Mora. But uh, Billy could have cleared this up. But why hasn't he? I mean, he's not he's not hiding. In the, he's not investigating Mora's disappearance officially. He doesn't have to keep everything tight-lipped. He could come out and, and say exactly how our room was left. And so maybe we are getting it wrong, but but uh, we haven't had any comment from him over the years other than there was no new note. And I don't I don't find that answer acceptable. Uh, let me just leave you guys with one question. There was one, one question about the A-frame house and uh, what investigation do we know had been done of that uh, of that A-frame house and has was it cleared? Uh, I, can, I can say that uh, the family orchestrated the investigation into the A-frame house, not the police. It was the family that did their own investigation, had hired their own folks to come and investigate that A-frame house, and they took samples from that house that have seemed to kind of disappear. I know they tried to turn in some, some evidence to police, it, not necessarily from the house, but I know they found a rusty knife, too, around that same time. Uh, police, uh, there was some confusion on, on that. I guess Fred even mailed the knife to uh to police, but as far as the house goes, it was investigated by Fred's own hired investigators, and we don't know the results, or at least I don't know the results. I just want to uh, apologize to Chris there because he just said that he's jumping up and down about Jeffrey Williams. The thing about Jeffrey Williams is that it's uh, it's it's tough to uh, look into somebody who's a former. Uh, chief of police you know we we are consist like we are looking into as many people as possible the best we can the, we just don't have a lot of information beyond what's already out there uh he's kind of an elusive character hello 
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on. And the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%.